You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Dan Diamond, a national health reporter here at The Post. And I'm joined today by Professor Philip Zellico and Dr. Charity Dean, co-authors from the COVID Crisis Group of a new book called Lessons from the COVID War, an investigative report. You can see my copy right here, my review in The Post today. Professor, you were lead author of this report, Welcome to Washington Post Live. Glad to be with you, Dan. Dr. Charity Dean, you were co-author of this report. Welcome to you as well. Happy to be here. Professor, I'd like to start with you. What is the COVID crisis group and how did this team of experts come together? In a world where there's so much writing and talking about the pandemic too, what new perspectives does your book offer? Well, we came together to try to plan a national COVID commission. And we started work on that a little more than two years ago. Um, as it became obvious to us about a year ago that there was not going to be a national COVID commission anytime soon, perhaps ever, um, we uh, talked a lot about what to do and then finally decided uh, that actually we had a pretty good understanding of what had happened in the crisis. And we should just say what we could about uh, what we thought happened. That we thought what really people needed is something that cut through the huge jumble of confusing information and just cut into why did people make the key choices that they made? What were the information and tools and possibilities that they could see in front of them? And why did things turn out the way that they did and everything from prevention and warning all the way to operation warp speed and to do that in a kind of a plain direct way and we thought we needed to try to offer that pretty soon. Uh, with the failure to create a commission, the window in which to help people understand this while their memories was still fresh was a window that was closing. And so we tried to offer this report together um, while, we, while we thought people were still ready to learn. Dr. Dean, you experienced the pandemic from a few different perspectives. You were a California state health official, now you're CEO of your own healthcare company. Did those different perspectives give you different opinions on what happened during the pandemic and what went wrong? Mm. Dan, they really did. And it's consistent with one of the themes that comes through in the book, which is the critical role of public-private partnerships. Look, I've served as a public servant for many years, including serving, uh, leading the state of California. And now I work closely with security leadership in the private sector, building solutions. What I know for sure, and really what the 34 co-authors reflected in this report, is that the public-private partnerships are central to the successes of COVID. Government can't do this alone, industry can't do this alone, but the partnerships were quite effective. There's a new public-private partnership in the works for a new vaccine accelerator, Project NextGen from the White House. Do you think, Dr. Dean, based on the value of those partnerships, that that is teed up for success? I think it's heading in the right direction, absolutely. You, the successes of Operation Warp Speed and the successes we've seen over the last three years were all when the, I'll use a, a war term, when we were in unified command, public and private, and philanthropy and academia. So I think that the White House is headed absolutely in the right direction. Uh, what all of us, all the co-authors of this report concluded is we would like to see more of that hardened into infrastructure. You know, we came at this with 
popsicle sticks and duct tape at times. In incredible inventions came out of it. Let's harden the infrastructure that worked so that we have a permanent capability. Professor, one of the- Dan, a, a little bit, because um, one of our uh, co-authors, uh, Kendall Hoyt, spoke eloquently to this at a meeting yesterday. And we like the Next Gen Initiative. We think it's promising. We think it's too time limited, it's too COVID specific, and it's too far upstream. And by upstream, we mean it's too focused on R&D and not enough on manufacturing. Um, the key thing that Warp Speed did was not R&D. The key thing Warp Speed did was master manufacturing and distribution. And we think kind of in a way, the failure to fully learn the lessons of Warp Speed is hampering the kind of promising public-private partnerships that the crisis illustrated in the Warp Speed case. Well, Professor, why don't we stay with you? You've just talked about some of the lessons learned from Warp Speed, this broader idea of what can we take away from the pandemic response. You were executive director of the September 11th commission. What similarities or differences does the COVID crisis group bring to its own review? What we really tried to bring is a multidisciplinary perspective from a lot of different angles, people in government, economics, public health, biology, uh, clinical medicine, uh, and a lot of people who'd had a lot of frontline experience during the pandemic, um, like Mike Callahan and James Lawler, who were actually on the Diamond Princess and saw this from so many angles. So what we wanted to bring to this was a nitty gritty feel of how things really worked in the field. Uh, the 9-11 story was a very different kind of story. In a way, it's a, a gigantic criminal story. In many ways, the COVID crisis is a much harder problem to get your to get arms around. It was much more sprawling, uh, much more national in scope and global in scope. And it required a greater breadth of knowledge and understanding than we had to have uh, to understand what happened on 9-11. Given the sprawling nature of the pandemic, do we need a government-backed commission to probe the COVID response? I think, uh, I think that would have been ideal uh, two years ago. Um, I but, think but the are, moment has passed. I I fear now that if you said, "Gee, we could get a great commission and it would be passed by the end of 2023 and it would report in 2025 or 2026," I think um, we will the window will already have cl long closed by then. And then the second point is, I'm increasingly pessimistic about whether a government commission can say things as candidly and forthrightly and directly as they need to be said. Um, in our report, uh, we were less constrained by some of the constraints that would afflict a commission appointed by the representatives of the two parties. In what's, our one current thing, what's, what's one thing that you said that you think a government commission would not have been able to say? Oh, we just were very direct in our uh, summations of the failures of institutions. Uh, we have some comments in the report where we say, for instance, federal crisis management collapsed. Uh, we say that uh, President Trump abdicated his duty of national leadership. Um, uh, I think a commission, uh, five of, half of whose members were appointed by the current Republican Party would have difficulty endorsing sentences like that. 
Um, but that's a, that's what happened. Uh, then there are a number of things we say about things that failed at the state and local level. Uh, we say some things that people in the public health community feel uneasy about because we say fundamentally their structures are structures that were designed for 19th century problems and aren't really ready for 21st century problems. I think there are a lot of people in that community who know that's true, but those are hard things to put on paper. Dr. Dean, turning to you, you were a co-author of this new book, Lessons from the COVID War. You were also a main character of another pandemic era book, The Premonition by Michael Lewis. If Americans are looking to read one book to understand the pandemic, which one should they read? Dan, you're going to make me choose. Uh, I would say read read both of them. Um, the Premonition is a wonderful story. It's an absolutely true story that follows characters. Uh, this book that we're talking about here is different. This is really a comprehensive report. With the 34 co-authors, I'm always in awe of their contributions as truly nonpartisan seeking the truth. I do not believe that a nation unwilling to do a searching self-inventory has much of a shot of improving the next time, and we know there will be a next time. So this book, I think the benefit to the general public or a non-microbiology sophisticated technical uh, person is it's accessible, and we do use plain language, uh, some of which might be really uncomfortable for those who are either in leadership in the former administration or the current administration. But our goal was really to take a whole look, get to the truth of the issue, and map out what solutions might look like so that we don't have to fail next time. I like that you joked I was making you choose, but then you did not choose and endorse both books. I'm gonna try again uh, to get to a singular answer. Professor, we have some distance now from the first year of the pandemic, at least. If you're looking back at the early days, what was the biggest preventable mistake that the U.S. made? Oh, the uh, biggest preventable mistake uh, was probably the failure to uh, warn in time, release emergency funds that were already available in time, and then develop a, an adequate testing program to provide us with tools. So the, it's a cluster of choices that occurred probably beginning in about late January of 2020 um, up through the first uh, couple of months of the crisis. Uh, I think that's uh, probably a kind of a, a number one failure because it sort of set a whole tone of we were on the back foot from then on. And there was a sense that the government was floundering and flailing and that then fed and aggravated the already toxic politics. There are some other really big ones we could pick out. A lot of people, a lot of your listeners, will want to know what we had to say about schools. And we devote some attention to, and we think actually a lot of American schools could have been reopened much sooner with toolkits that were actually, could have been developed and available by the fall semester of 2020. Um, but, uh, and so as a result, America in general kept its schools closed practically a full school year longer than was the case in most other affluent societies. Well, let's actually stay with school closings because I know we've gotten audience questions, as you mentioned, Professor. Uh, Brent Burkholder from California asks, what are the major lessons regarding school closing during a pandemic? So maybe casting that forward, Dr. Dean, I'd, I'd be curious what you would say. What are the lessons to make sure that we can be better next time? 
Ah, it's such an important question. Um, schools are really at the heart of the issue because I'd say the first lesson is when we are flying blind with any threat, when we cannot see with surgical precision where it is and who it's impacting, broad, blunt measures have to be used. We know that is true in communicable disease control. And I agree, many of the schools could have, be, could have been opened earlier if they had the toolkit. But if they also had situational awareness, you know, we have weather maps with pretty good precision of what's coming and what you need to do. Why don't we have that capability for health security threats to enable our schools to stay open? Uh, the rapid testing and, you know, we know what works. You, you take the kiddos that are infected that are uh, infectious to others, even if asymptomatic, you take them out of circulation and you actually prevent outbreaks. We know what works. So I think the, the very first lesson is that when you're flying blind and you don't execute a toolkit to be able to move with surgical precision, the schools shut down. I think that was a failure how long they stay closed. And I really do believe we can do better next time. The second lesson I would say is speed matters. In an outbreak, every minute counts. Schools are uh, a place where a lot of cross-pollination, shall we call, occurs between children. Uh, the ability to take fast preventive measures very early on will prevent massive outbreaks in the schools, which spill over to the community, which spills over to nursing homes. So speed matters, and it again comes back to the kind of situational awareness that we need to have for next time, shared visibility. Where is the threat? What are the tools? How do we pull the triggers early to prevent mass lockdowns like we saw so long with schools? Professor, and the book know, draws I, on... I, oh, go ahead. Sorry, just kind of cut in. A lot of the focus is on CDC's failures to provide that kind of toolkit and guidance, and that's fair, and we say some hard things in the report about it. But I want to call out CDC wasn't actually built or designed to make those kinds of choices. It doesn't have those kinds of capabilities. America doesn't really have a national public health agency. Um, it dealt with operational capabilities around the country that make trade-offs between loss of education, economic harm, and public health issues. The CDC was never built to make those choices or take those kinds of executive decisions. It was thrust into the position of offering guidances that turned out to be unworkable and sometimes based on bad science. But there, the deeper problem is that we didn't really have institutions that were even built to make those choices in the first place. One of the recommendations in the book is a new official who would oversee CDC and other relevant agencies if there is a pandemic. Are you sensing, Professor, that there's interest in that on Capitol Hill in making that structure real? Not yet. Um, the uh, usual solution in cases where people sense that there's a chaos of authority, which the kill does realize, and the usual answer is, well, can't we just appoint a czar to take charge of this at the White House? <laughs> so at the end of 2022, uh, Congress created a new White House office of pandemic preparedness, an office, by the way, that the Biden White House did not ask for, uh, but which Congress is offering to them. and. They may try to make lemonade out of the lemons that they've been given, um, adding their sugar to it. But the, that's not really necessarily the, the, the full answer. Um, adding one more White House office could compound the confusion. The office has no operational authority, no budget power. Um, 
we tried to develop something that actually was embedded in one of the line departments where you already have a huge amount of authority, which is health and human services, where you actually have a lot of existing authority. You don't need to create a giant new national public health agency. We have a lot of the authorities and capabilities now. We actually have a lot of the 21st century data capabilities now that's in the private healthcare system, but that data isn't shared between companies and they don't share it with their regulators. We don't pool the, the data we have now. We don't need revolutionary agencies or revolutionary technology that doesn't exist. We can just make a whole lot better use of the, the tools that are available in our society today. Professor, you mentioned the White House czars who spring up in crises, and there have now been three COVID coordinators, Deborah Burks, Jeff Zients, currently Ashish Jha. I was struck in reading the book, you interviewed hundreds of experts. You did not interview any of the COVID coordinators while they were in seat. You talked to Jha before he was in office, did not talk to Mike Pence, who led the COVID task force, Alex Azar, the health secretary. There are a number of officials who just weren't contacted for this project. How confident are you that the book reflects the full, most accurate story about COVID? Yeah, well, we, uh, Debbie Burks uh, wrote a memoir of her experiences, which we scoured thoroughly. She sat for two full days of deposition, sworn deposition testimony, the transcripts of which we also were able to scour thoroughly. And we didn't think that actually there were any questions that we could ask that she hadn't covered already in 300 pages and two days of depositions. Um, in the case of Ashish Jha, we actually tried to reach out to him, and he was under instructions from the White House not to talk to us after he went into the government. We had already talked to him before he went in. So that just gives you a little bit of an example of the case-by-case -case decisions we had to make. But we gave the Biden administration the opportunity, people in the administration, to read over our whole draft report and call out to us uh, things that they thought might be wrong in what we had said and we got their comments and listened to what they had to say and we think we have a reasonable understanding of how things worked in covid management in both administrations what did the biden administration say that they disagreed with in the report well actually the the things they called out to us um were actually turned out to be a couple of them were good points and we already have incorporated them into the report so uh, uh, there are some areas where they said, well, could you, could you pay attention to this program and this move? And we kind of looked at that and said, yeah, good point. And so where they had some good suggestions for us, we took them. Um, they are naturally defensive about some things. Um, and we talked to a number of people who were in the Biden administration. I mean, they know that they did not make the advanced market commitment call on Paxlovid in the first half of 2021, so that we didn't have large amounts of Paxlovid available for the Omicron wave of the winter of 21, 22. Uh, they know that they're caught a little bit off guard um, in the second half of 2021 on testing and had to scramble to make up some lost ground. They know they were a little slow off the mark on uh, schools and they fixed that in August, 2020 and began developing a much better schools and testing policy that was fully in place by the winter of 21-22. So there, are, uh, um, there was a, let me just say there was a constructive dialogue with people in the Biden administration about what they had accomplished, but what they had also left undone. I think really um, the biggest criticism you can make 
is they never really did the kind of after action report that we now have had to do. They themselves never did the kind of analytical effort to understand what had gone wrong or supported efforts by others to do that. So we've had to shoulder that burden and we've done it. And that's important because they haven't gotten behind a really fundamental reform agenda. They still have not gotten behind a reform agenda. To this day, the administration has not clarified the roles and missions of all the different entities if a pandemic broke out tomorrow. So that's because they haven't done their own work of the kind that Ron Klain led after the Ebola outbreak in 2015. And so our report is coming in and saying, well, here's our argument about what needs to be done. And we'll see if they have answers that are better than the ones we suggest. And I've heard you make the argument before that the Bush administration initially did not want the 9-11 commission, but later President Bush came to embrace it and support the, the takeaways. We spent a fair yeah, amount of time on the government. It was forced on them by Congress. <laughs> right. We, we spent a fair amount of time on the government response. I wanna make sure we're casting the net a little wider. And Dr. Dean, one of the issues that's come up, uh, one of the audience questions, in fact, is on the idea of vaccine disinformation. This is from Barbara Taylor uh, of Oregon. She writes, what is the best way to address vaccination disinformation so that future pandemics do not result in so many unnecessary deaths? Doctor? It's a great point she raises, and it's something that we do address in the book, the role that poor communication played across the spectrum. Um, I can speak from experience here, having having encountered vaccine misinformation, both as a local and state health officer and, and now in the private sector. Um, it does not work to come down hard with scientific facts and argument when, when someone is very um, strongly held in their belief. What works is finding common ground. And I think that's where at the very beginning of communication from healthcare systems, from private employers, certainly from government, about the vaccine, we could have all done better. Um, having a coherent message in the very beginning. And we know that large employers in the United States uh, carried a lot of weight here with their employees when they were going to require or highly recommend uh, vaccination when they ran vaccination campaigns. And so I would say, you know, the role of a whole of society response, messaging, communication to prevent the misinformation, um, that's what works. We know that's what works. And looking at the failures with COVID, absent that coordinated, um, targeted, correct communication, misinformation will fill in the vacuum. And that's exactly what we saw. Doctor, we are just days away from the end of the COVID public health emergency on May 11th. Do you think it is an appropriate time to end the public health emergency? Dan, my concern is that much of the infrastructure that was stood up during COVID uh, some that was invented on the spot, again, popsicle sticks and duct tape, a lot of it worked and began to be hardened, including many of the things the former White House administration and current administration did. We are watching that quietly disappear into the night. And I'm quite concerned, you know, whether an emergency ends or not, uh, that we need to have a whole of society effort, really the political will from government to say, we're gonna harden this key infrastructure that worked. Even if the emergency ends, we need a permanent situational awareness. We need a better coordinated operational response. We need to re-examine our authority infrastructure and certainly look at communication. I have not seen that by and large led at the national level. 
And that's where I would, you know, not speak specifically to the, the emergency going away per se, um, but the sense that COVID is going away, the sense that we're not still in an emergency and that this could very likely ramp up again with even more dangerous variants. We are not out of the woods. And even if we are, more are coming. This will not be another 100 years. Professor, what's your assessment of where the U.S. health system stands if there is another emergency in the future? How worn down is the workforce? Are our hospitals? Are our officials? Uh, Dan, you know, I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, because actually, I was hearing some things even from members of our group yesterday that got me thinking about this very question again. Um, and in a way, I think you're, we need to go beyond even what's in our report. In our report, at the end of the healthcare chapter, we say that the healthcare system was sagging and is was very badly beaten up by the crisis. And we give some material on that. And actually, Dr. Dean really helped. What I'd add to that now, and your question calls it out, is I think actually our healthcare system is now sliding downward into a systemic crisis. I think things are actually now becoming quite serious. The stuff we described in the book has continued to spiral downward. Uh, we were just hearing from a number of doctors who are on the front lines of this and nurses right now. And they are saying that the nursing crisis, which was acute when we wrote our book, that nursing crisis is now really becoming grave. And it's kind of a canary in the coal mine that the healthcare system is really now beginning to sag to a dangerous degree, even in the very best medical centers. Uh, they uh, And the nursing shortages is only, which are at a crisis level now, is only part of that warning sign. So some of the things we call for in the, in the in area of preparedness will not just be relevant for the next pandemic, but a lot of the steps we call for might actually help people get through the daily crisis the healthcare system is moving into now. We are, we are winding to the end of this program, so I'd like to close with a question for both of you. 30-second response, please. If a White House official is watching this, if a public health leader is, is hearing you make recommendations, what is the one thing, Dr. Dean, that you'd like them to focus on and take away? Absence of a shared real-time situational awareness um, or intelligence infrastructure so that all partners, public, private, government, uh, industry, can move with speed and agility. Absence of that means we're going to fail again. We cannot operate within a system built in the 19th century with phone calls, fax machines, paper, spreadsheets, and the technology exists today to put a real solution in place. So I'm ever full of hope that the kind of solution and capabilities we need um, can be created, but it takes a whole of society political will across all. I think that would be the one message I would pass to them. There is hope. If we take a self inventory and conclude, we are going to go invest in and create the kind of capabilities that led to the failures in, in this COVID response. Professor, your yeah. one piece of advice. Yeah, concentrate on preparedness. It's not about more big science. It's not about spending money and having a program. It's about actually, what is it you're going to do in an emergency and are you prepared to do it? 
Have you heard from anyone since the book has been published in the White House? I guess the book just came out today. Have you heard anything from the White House on any of the actions that you recommend being implemented? Uh, not yet. I can tell you that uh, Ashish Jha had a staffer at our rollout uh, meeting all afternoon yesterday, listening and taking notes very carefully and promising to deliver a very candid report. <laughs> so um, they're taking it in. Well, that, that may fall to me as a Washington Post reporter to figure out what exactly that report will contain. But uh, thank you for leaving me a breadcrumb, uh, breadcrumb to chase, Professor. This was fascinating. I could talk about it all afternoon. Unfortunately, we are winding down on time. Professor Zellico, Dr. Charity Dean, thank you so much for joining Washington Post Live. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure, Dan. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.